Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. And all everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and g'day, Marcus. How are you? G'day, Annie. Yeah, good thanks. And yeah, yeah we've morning got a, to all the listeners out there. Yeah, we've got a whole program around uh, uh, waste, in fact. Yeah, we do, yeah. Coming yeah. up at eight o'clock, we'll be uh, yeah, we'll be talking to the Anti Toxic Waste Alliance. It's a new group uh, formed in response to the spate of toxic chemical fires in uh, Melbourne's north and west. Yeah, which will be really interesting. And uh, later on, uh, for people who have been long-term listeners of uh, Solidarity Breakfast, you will be pleased to hear that Noah Pasil is going to talk to us at the end of the program around uh, the issue of uh, U.S aggression towards Iran and uh, also around what's going on in the Sudan. Both uh, Sudan in particular is uh, one of uh, Noah's major uh, focuses of study, so that should be very interesting indeed. Uh, but uh, before we uh, go to our first interview, which is going to be around uh, the um, Victorian government's uh, plans around waste uh, uh, removal, uh, and because they're in the midst at the moment of a, um, what do you call it, a parliamentary inquiry into uh, what we're going to do about our waste in Victoria. And so we're going to talk to someone who has been following that with great deal of interest. Uh, but before we do, important uh, message from, let's see, who should we get a message from? Let's see, I'm not entirely sure. We should, uh, we'll go to them first. Hi, Hi. we're from Braybrook College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. This is Ari Lecker, you're here on 3CR 8.55am Community Radio, also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. 
Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662-3744. The new international bookshop, a 3CR supporter. Yes, and you're back on line with uh, Annie and Marcus. And we're on the line here. We've got uh, Gillian Blair, who has been looking in particular at the idea that the Victorian government's put forward around uh, incinerating our toxic waste. G'day, Gillian. How are you this morning? G'day. I should actually say it wasn't an idea of the Victorian government initially. It seems to have been pushed by Josh Frydenberg. I heard him on the radio about a year and a half ago talking about this, but I was aware of it before then. <laughs> oh, right. So great, great plans by great men, in inverted commas. Well... <laughs> Contrary to what somebody said to a friend of mine recently, when you burn something, it doesn't just disappear into nothing. Um, It goes into the atmosphere, and that's one of the problems because um, when we burn things like plastics and waste that people put in their bins every week, um, along with bits of our forest, of course, uh, because that helps to keep the technology going, that actually causes major health problems with people's lungs and their hearts. And um, the, I think it was the United Nations recently put out a report about all the millions of people who die uh, from air pollution and soil pollution also has been mentioned uh, this year too. Yeah. The, uh, the um, idea of uh, creating um, incinerators uh, for getting rid of uh, waste uh, is tied up with this notion that, in fact, they've got a slogan, haven't they? Uh, what is it? Uh-huh. Uh, it's uh, um, about uh, creating energy out of the uh, the waste that they burn. Yes, they actually, here in Australia, it's been touted as so-called waste to energy, but the Europeans have had experience of these so-called plants, and they call them the waste of energy plants. <laughs> uh, because uh, you, Europe's moving towards a circular economy, so resources such as domestic waste are being recycled and composted, and they're in the process of swapping over to plastics, only plastics that can be recycled, not the ones that you can't recycle. So if you look at the situation in Australia, we've got about seven sorts of, of plastics, and only three of those can be recycled. Um, And you can also make plastics from natural products, such as vegetable products like potatoes and cornstarch. Which is what the Europeans are tending towards, right? Yes, and the other issue is that when you move towards a circular economy, instead of burning something, which is what 
seems to be on the agenda quietly in Australia as a quick solution. Um, instead of burning stuff and then digging more stuff up to make more stuff, you actually circulate the stuff that you've already got and you save an enormous amount of energy um, and also a lot of pollution. And uh, some people have been moving towards making stuff out of plastics too. I think some people would find their puffer jackets and their dunas have uh, fluff in them, which is being made from recycled plastics. But also it is a, a path to uh, a changed economy uh, and uh, other jobs. Absolutely, hugely more jobs. So when you think about it, um, all those people who are in areas where they've before they've had problems with air pollution and black lungs because they've been working on, on producing coal, and all those people who were done out of a job in the car industry because Tony Abbott didn't take action and didn't say, well, we can swap to making electric cars. All those people could be provided with jobs. They can be retrained and they can work in recycling in all sorts of different industries that hang off the recycling. Yeah, which is not just sorting through to make sure different types of things are put into the right place, but it actually leads into manufacturing, doesn't it? Well, I actually just saw a film recently. I forget the name of it now. I'll try and feed you that information some other time. But um, it showed a proper recycling plant, and it was uh, mainly... Um, helped along by all the rubbish would go along sort of sliding things and then there would um, metals would get taken out by uh, big magnets and uh, <laughs> the paper would be recycled. It would be uh, wafted off with air, oh. high-speed air <laughs> and all sorts of things. And there was stuff going in all directions, but it was extremely organised. Yeah, okay. and, and everything got recycled. And then anything that was putrescible waste, like uh, vegetable peelings and stuff, that used to be composted. Can well, we... Here it, in oh, yeah? sorry. Let's get back to the, um, the issue of incinerators. Now, incinerator, yeah. um, one of the issues around uh, that particular solution, uh, and let's imagine it on the ground, is that... Uh, the person that's uh, – th there's actually in, uh, industry interests that are pushing towards that area, isn't it, aren't there? Yes, that is true, actually. Um, I um, got wind of this because um, I was invited to a so-called – because I'd put in a submission to the EPA because there's one of these um, plants planned for the La Trobe Valley. And um, I had written – previously written to the chief scientist and said that uh, these things are not a good idea and they're on the long-term plans for Geelong and Warrnambool. And uh, she got someone to phone me back and they said, oh, well, there's one in the approval stage for the Latrobe Valley. And I thought, poor people in the Latrobe Valley. And then she said, um, well, would you like to put in your letter, which was fairly long and detailed, uh, as a submission? So I did. And then I learned that they were having all of these special so-called education sessions for people who make the decisions for municipalities. So uh, I got an invitation to go along to one of these and I said, well, I'll come along if I can speak for five minutes. So we had about an hour or so of a promo for uh, incineration from a bloke from the UK incineration industry. And in Britain, 
in Europe and in America, these, this industry has been given the bums rush. They don't want any more of it because of the health problems and also the pollution of the food chain because it pollutes the air and then the soil. So um, the industry wanted to set up down here and the very um, organisation in the Victorian government that is supposed to be in charge of recycling has in very powerful positions people who are from the UK uh, burning industry. And as Professor Paul Connett says, um, God recycles, the devil burns. So at the moment, Julian, there's a, in Victoria, there's a parliamentary inquiry going on as we speak into the uh, waste right. and recycling industry. Is your idea part of that submission? I actually sent them um, a submission from the Sustainable Agriculture and Communities Alliance. Um, and farmers... Uh, contrary to what people say, uh, a lot of them are very aware of um, environmental issues um, and they're planting trees and they're doing all sorts of stuff to try and, um, you know, repair the damage that we've been doing to the planet. And uh, we're actually concerned that if one of these plants sets up, because the um, air travels a very long distance and it carries the toxins with it, that uh, our food will get contaminated with this stuff. Now, one of the things that's produced by incineration is dioxins, and then you've got furans and all sorts of other nasties that are generated by the burning. And dioxins are the most toxic product, apart from radioactive nuclides, that has been produced by humankind. So um, it can cause cancer. Very, very minute amounts. So you don't want that in your food chain. Now, what was the original question? <laughs> that you've made a submission to, you know. Yeah, I did. I did. I made a submission. Uh, God knows what will happen to that submission. I do hope they read everything. No doubt they've got stuff from all the pro-incineration people. The problem being that we're in this situation now uh, for two reasons. One of them is that there were millions of dollars set aside for quite a few years to be used for setting up proper recycling plants. And that money was used for other purposes. It went into general revenue. The other thing is that unlike in Britain, because I have relatives in Britain, um, they all have to uh, separate all their rubbish so you don't get glass mixed in with plastics, mixed in with putrescible waste which is a horrible job to sort out. And if you get glass in your plastics recycling plant, it's going to muck up your equipment and cause lots of damage. Yeah, so I've always wondered yeah. about that because uh, we get these bins, but they're not precise enough. So uh, it leads you to believe that they're not actually serious. No, they're not. And a few years ago, a friend of mine was down at the tip in Warrnambool and he saw this great big truck coming along and it was loaded with cardboard and the cardboard was supposed to be for recycling and it went straight into the hole in the ground. So the, pro the other problem is that, you know, municipalities take the cheapest offers uh, for uh, dealing with their waste, which is really a resource, not a waste, and, um, and this is what happens. And you spoke before about the uh, the low chance of cancer from this form of um, waste recycling. Has there been uh, health impacts proven in those facilities over in uh, in Britain? Absolutely. Um, if you look up dioxins, 
Um, and maybe you look up uh, Professor Paul Connett's Plus Dioxins. You'll probably find stuff from him too. Um, Professor Connett has been consulted by about 40 different countries around the world on how to deal with waste. And burning is not the way to go because that causes dioxins. Because when you're, when you're burning oil, this is the toxin, uh, one of the toxins, um, that um, comes from burning oil. And burning plastic is burning oil. Plastics are made from oil. Right, so uh, the the Latrobe Valley doesn't just uh, have um, the uh, residues of the fire of the open cut, but they have to now contend with the concept that the Latrobe Valley is going to be a dumping ground for uh, in, an incinerator, um, and that they'll have to uh, put up with the outcomes from that now. Yes, well, you see, they've been sucked into this by being promised jobs. Yeah, it's they always about jobs. jobs in lots of yeah, no, it's always about industries. Jobs. Yes, but one of my friends down there told me, uh, I don't know if she read this in the paper or what, so I stand to be corrected, uh, but um, she said that, it w- that the word of the uh, industry representatives, the burning industry representatives was, well, there's so much pollution in the atmosphere down here that the bit that we put in won't be noticeable. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But the thing is, we, we now know these days that the old idea that if it's only a little bit, it doesn't matter, is, has been stood on its head. And even low amounts of stuff can actually do you harm. Stuff you cannot see. Yeah, of course. It, in fact, it's the ones you can't see that you have to worry about. Uh, thank you very much, Gillian, for talking to us this morning. Can I just say one more thing? You sure can. When you burn all this stuff, uh, one third of it is reduced to highly toxic, very concentrated ash. It's a great disposal problem, and it has to go to a special uh, dump for toxins. And uh, they have major problems with this in the countries that have used incineration. And in Holland, they've actually built a mountain of this stuff and then covered it in plastic. It is a major, major problem, and it also causes greenhouse gases in large amounts. So uh, that's what I'd like people to bear in mind too. So if we're trying to reduce our impact on greenhouse gases, this is an industry that we should avoid like the plague. Thank you very much for the warning. (laughs) Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman down. Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman down. Woman is the best thing that happened to the world. Woman cry the harmony, woman bring the joy, woman bring the happiness. Oh, but woman, don't believe what I say, you have got it all. Oh, younger woman, don't you doubt, you are beautiful. Oh, older woman. Don't you look down, you have done it all. Oh, woman, don't you doubt, you have got it all. Don't let the woman cry, don't let the woman down. Woman is a bad thing that happened to the world. Woman create harmony, woman bring the joy, woman bring the 
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus and uh, I went down to the steps of uh, Parliament House yesterday and uh, spoke to the people who were sitting there uh, for a vigil for uh, public housing and uh, I uh, spoke to them and uh, I found out more about their experience of being there for 24 hours on the coldest or shortest day of the year. Uh, winter solstice and p- possibly the coldest uh, and uh, well, I call it the vigil for homelessness now, but uh, when I uh, uh, it, when I did the thing, but uh, I'm not sure if it's homelessness or public housing that we should be holding a vigil for. So let's hear from them. The okay, we're outside uh, the um, Parliament House in Victoria on the uh, day of a vigil for uh, homelessness. It's the 21st of June, which is the winter solstice. Okay, Joe, you were just saying that you started at 12 in the morning? Yep. We started at uh, midnight at the beginning of the winter solstice and we will finish at midnight at the end of the winter solstice, which is the 21st of June. What's the significance? Why? Why this day? It's uh, arguably... Well, it is the shortest day of the year, but also in Melbourne it's usually one of the wettest and coldest days of the year and we wanted to highlight to people the plight of a growing number of people in Melbourne and regional Victoria and Australia uh, regarding homelessness and what they have to put up with every night. Yeah, um, they would say, the uh, powers that be, say that they've got it all under control, that they're going into social housing and it should all be righted by, uh, um, what is it, rental assistance. Well, I don't know from what... uh, uh, religious religious book they're reading from but from my atheist book which is based on facts not fiction we had 200 people crowded into the so-called cafe Salvation Army Cafe 50 metres from here we had people uh, sleeping in laneways here in central Melbourne we had people trying to keep the rain off their bodies and we had people sleeping in the treasury gardens and parks around the city last night. Now, at at about 4 o'clock in the morning, it was unbearable for us, but we still stayed and kept the flag up, and we'll have warm beds to go to tonight and tomorrow night, well, most of us, although we've had some homeless people here. But the reality is that for a lot of people, winter is really bad, and there is no housing for them. People have been on waiting lists for over two decades... Uh, People uh, are not being housed and uh, there's homeless people around here who have been homeless for a decade, believe it or not. What is the use of rent relief when a lot of people can't can't, um, rent a place? When rents are so high and it's so much more competitive now when lots of people can't afford to buy and rent instead, even people who, who could afford to pay rent are not even given a chance to try that. A little known fact is that 25% of people who are rent are renting shared accommodation because that is the only way they can actually keep a roof over their heads. So we're talking about over a million people who are forced into shared accommodation. And there's another 100,000 who are homeless, bereft of any accommodation. And you've got about another quarter of a million people who are 
couch surfing in this country. So you're looking at figures that run around 10 to 15% of people who are having trouble uh, keeping a roof over their heads uh, in a, in a uh, stable way for long periods of time. Why did you come along today? Because uh, public housing is very vital. Housing's a, a vital thing for humans. Um, public housing is not doing so well. A lot of it's becoming privatised. There's a lot of homelessness in Melbourne. You've experienced homelessness? Yeah, many years ago. Yep. It was a bit easier back then to get a place, but now it's really difficult if you get left out in the cold. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. I, I was just going to say, this isn't a, a new phenomenon. This has been going on for over a decade now that we've had people on the uh, footpaths. In, a time, in previous eras, we wouldn't have seen this. That's right. The numbers are increasing, so people are seen. And we've got, you've got a, a double whammy effect. You've got... Uh, rental accommodation which is uh, very difficult to uh, source uh, you've got uh, the rise of slum landlords and boarding houses which are quasi guest house and boarding houses charging 250 to $300 a week for a room and a sh- so called shared kitchen and bathroom and you've got really high real estate prices which has frozen a lot of young people and older people out of the real estate market and forced them to rent this is a country where you'd expect about 70 to 80 percent of people to have a mortgage and own their own home at the end of their working life. Today, there are less than 50 percent of Australians who actually own their own home or are paying off a mortgage. So it's changed. There's also a lot of empty flats, aren't there? Yes and no. Uh, it's difficult to know how many empty flats there are during the period when housing prices were escalating year by year, 10 to 15 percent what a lot of investors did because we have an investor-friendly environment where people actually get uh, tax deduction for having only more than one home. Uh, What was happening is people were buying property, locking the door, waiting for the real estate values to rise and then uh, sell them. They didn't want the trouble of having tenants there. But now that housing prices have stabilised and are beginning to fall, especially in the the, uh, unit market, there will be more pressure on landlords and landladies to actually uh, uh, open up those uh, properties for rent. But the dilemma is, because of increasing population growth, especially in Victoria where the population increased by 2.2% last year, uh, there are still not enough rental properties to go around. They, the government actually thinks that it's got a, it under control, doesn't it? Uh, it? Its policies is to actually have what they call affordable housing in the private rental market. That is exactly what they've said. I've actually heard a minister say that. That's what they're expecting to do. Well, that's their policy. Their policy is to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. 30 years ago, 15% of Victorians lived in public housing and you're able to access public housing if you couldn't buy a home. So you could be a worker on a low wage with a family or a couple on a low wage with children and you could access public housing. Today, public housing is earmarked only for desperate cases, and in many of those cases, what you see is people living in uh, hotel rooms uh, around the city, especially women and children, who it's not very nice seeing them sleeping on footpaths because the state does have a a duty of care. But the dilemma is, because of this uh, policy, and the Andrews government was very smart, they know that while public housing is seen as an issue for the homeless... The public is not interested because they don't see themselves as ever being in that situation. 
So embarked on this huge multi-billion dollar construction phase, digging tunnels, widening roads, everywhere you go you can see that, removing railway crossings, billions of dollars, about 70 billion for the next 12 months, while 205 million has been allocated to public housing because of the pressure groups like ours, not just our group but other groups, uh, public housing groups, placed on them before the last state election. And what they tried to do is they tried to make the concept of public and private uh, housing interchangeable by having a common waiting list for public housing, community housing and affordable housing and, and transferring management of public housing to private corporations or private uh, institutions that describe themselves as community or affordable housing. So what they've tried to do is muddy the waters as far as what was public housing. So when you hear people talk about affordable housing, uh, yeah, affordable housing, community housing, what they're talking about is privately owned property. And what we get, you get to the situation where only the deserving poor, those who acquiesce, get access to these places. While in public housing, it's you know it's needs-based system where you can't cherry pick, you know, the, the so-called better. Uh, people who can pay their rent and leave everybody else homeless. So what we are seeing is a direct consequence of this cherry-picking policies where the community and affordable housing sector basically brings in people who are working to fill in those places and excludes people who are on basic incomes or new start allowance because they can't afford the rent. Can I ask you uh, why you're here, G'day? How are you? Good. I'm here because I live in communal housing and being a woman who's over 50, I'm very conscious of the lack of affordable housing in Melbourne. I'm employed at the moment and I still can't afford private rental. I'm on the public housing waiting list and I've been on that for two and a half years. We need dramatic action on all fronts to ensure that the resources that are there are put into building more public housing and to making sure that um, there is affordable private rental. What would it mean to you if, the, if someone said to you tomorrow that you could have a decent public housing place located in a relatively uh, uh, accessible place? What would that mean to you? For me, it would be peace of mind. It would be a tremendous improvement in terms of quality of life. Um, and also a feeling of um, there's a, a, connect, a feeling of wholeness because you actually have got somewhere where you can create a home, call that your own, and um, be able to influence what it's like living in that home. So empower you. Absolutely, yes. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So why are you sitting out here today? Um, I'm here because I believe that housing is a critical long-term issue for the betterment of the whole of society. That uh, when the government built the Housing Commission flats in the 50s and the 80s that are still standing today and are functioning to give people a home and security, that they had a long-term plan right now with... Um, siphoning money either to the uh, private landlords or to the private health care service, it only lasts as long as they keep paying and then all the benefit of that is gone. There is nothing long term and uh, 
I really like the idea of taking the stamp duty that is raised from the housing market and turning that into uh, coming back to housing and making housing affordable and equitable for the whole cross-section of society. So I'm really lucky that um, I've been able to secure a roof over my head and I feel that very strongly is a privilege. I have zero superannuation because as soon as I could, I, I took my meagre balance and made my mortgage less. And uh, to me, that gives me a sense that hopefully I will not end up on the streets. But it's a really real uh, situation that the older you get, the less you earn. And yet if you're renting, the rent doesn't go down, it goes up. So the, the gap and the capacity to make rental is just gets harder. It also it, it occurs to me that um, the whole concept of being a citizen as opposed to a consumer is really at stake here. It's, um, yeah, really important concepts because I believe in the greater good is the, the good for everyone. The idea of the 1% having so much stuff and everyone else can just look after themselves somehow, it's a really bizarre kind of concept and you end up with gated communities, you end up with us and them and that's not a a cohesive society and that's not the kind of thing that I think works for uh, anyone, let alone everyone, because uh, people who are rich feel so defensive and they, you know... Maybe they've got a level of comfort, but they don't seem to be able to relax and say, that's enough, I'm going to enjoy this, I'm going to leave some for other people. There seems to be this weird concept that there's never enough, and yet in the world, if we shared better, there's plenty. Thanks. Can I ask you why you're here today? Uh, I'm, I'm here under duress. Uh, yeah. Joe threatened to break my kneecaps if I wasn't. No, yeah. no, to support the movement and uh, to stop privatising the public house. Yeah. Why do you think it's an important issue? Uh, well, because it could happen to anybody. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I, I live in an old commission house and, uh, and my area was predominantly uh, public housing. And uh, when I grew up, it was a very... Uh, a great community feel and now that's been lost when a lot of houses have been sold off and uh, yeah it, it, it's very important to, to have people sort of in that safety net Judy, g'day can I ask you why you're here? Yeah, I'm here to support the people who are fighting for the right of homeless people we know um, having a roof on your head is a basic right of every human being not just in Australia anywhere around the world so we should fight, and we can see here, we are the richest country uh, you know, in the region. We have thousands of people are homeless, sleeping on a footpath. Yeah, yeah I passed people as I came up the hill. Yeah, yeah it's a disgrace, you know, being a rich country, having such a problem. And that's why this banner is trying to tell everyone, please go, come and join and fight for those people who are struggling having a roof on their head. Anybody asked you about why you're here? Yeah, plenty. Two of the most inspiring people I've met who have come and asked questions. One was 16 
a girl of 16 who knew what public housing was and engaged with discussion with so many of the people here. She said, you know, as a 16-year-old, I'm fearful of my future and we as youth are fearful of the future. And the other thing that she mentioned was that we care about people and the planet and all we ever hear about from politicians is about money and finance and the economy. The other person, um, I think he was in his mid-20s, early 20s, he came up and he saw the words public housing came up straight away. You know, he spoke to us about his, his perspective of the, the wrongs that have occurred as a result of selling off public housing and as a young person in his 20s, having seen during his lifetime homelessness increase and so now he's, he's interested in joining public interests before corporate interests. There was a, a woman here from Wales who came up to congratulate us on um, yeah, sticking up for public housing and we got into a conversation about Margaret Thatcher's uh, sell-off of public housing in England and she talked about the poverty uh, in England, particularly up north, as, as a result of the public housing sell-offs. And in any case, uh, she said that uh, recently there had been a protest of one million people that was counted by the police, one million people uh, protesting for, in, re- in relation to housing uh, going into London. And she said, yeah, there have been groups including one group that protested for three years for housing. So there you go. I, that, I just remembered that. I thought, wow, that's really fantastic, isn't it? Three years, that's a pretty good effort. <laughs> We're over halfway through now. Yeah, it's, it's been incredible uh, protest so far, or vigil as Joe likes to call it, because I had my first visit to the Salvation Army last night and uh, Sandy uh, kindly escorted me there, um, me and another lady and yeah, everything that she spoke about, uh, that she had spoken about previously including people sleeping head to head, a blaring TV, um, people sleeping on concrete floors that were covered in dirty carpet that was never washed. Um, and that just the sadness that I saw in, in everybody there. She also explained to me that uh, the Salvo's shelter isn't, isn't labelled as a shelter. It's labelled as a cafe. So therefore, people sleep on the floor with no provisions, no pillow, no blankets, nothing provided and it's a disgrace considering that the Salvation Army are given $8 million every year to outsource services and have the money dwindle away where it's not, to where it's not needed. So yeah, that was certainly experience and also different from 
uh, vigil in November. Um, the cold has been really extraordinary. You know, I'm layered up, and I know for a fact that there are people out there uh, who are not layered up and uh, don't have other people looking out for them. And, um, yeah, the cold has been really, really extraordinary. The rain, um, and we've all had umbrellas, so we're all, we're all prepared and we've, we've, we've got the provisions that we need and we've been prepared for this, but, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get even colder in the next couple of days. We, we experienced um, about six degrees last night and over the next couple of days it'll reduce to uh, about four degrees. So, yeah, um, it's very different from the last protest in that we, st- we had the elements at us but we didn't have that degree of um, chill. Yeah, so. Can you tell me why you're here? I'm here to support the need to increase the stock of public housing. And I think it's an important issue that all Victorians, all Australians, should actually um, be behind and support. Go to fewer words, more action? Most definitely. I'd prefer a lot more action in terms of funding, but uh, the notion of uh, the importance of public housing for uh, uh, has many benefits for the community, for individuals, for people within the family, people who are in the neighbourhood, um, and in for general citizenship. Citizenship, I think it's important. Thanks. Can I just add to that that one of the the young bloke who who came in and spoke to us. Um, about public housing was aware and and also I have to say the young girl too they were both acutely aware of their their inability to be able to afford a home Mm. and what the consequences of deregulating housing will be for them so they didn't just see it as a homelessness in in the context of homelessness they also saw it in the context of you know, how in the hell am I going to afford rent? Or, yeah. you know, that sort of permanent and stable housing for them. And these are young people. I just think that, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to add to that. But I think, yeah, I think ownership is one thing, but it's that notion of, of having a roof over your head and what happens if you can't have ownership? What, do, that, what does society do about that? And we have this notion that housing is for investment, yes. not for any social benefit. And I think that's what's missing is the social benefit that what public housing provides to society isn't, seems to be lost. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. And welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast on Community Radio 3CR. Uh, we're now going to be joined by Sue Vittori, who is the founding chairperson of the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance, a new group that's been formed. Uh, welcome to the program, Sue. Thanks, Marcus, and hi, Annie. G'day. Okay, Sue, yeah, as I mentioned before, uh, the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance is a new group. Uh, wh- why was the alliance established? Yeah, look... Uh, it was a few weeks ago now. It seems like a much longer time than that. But 
What happened, Marcus, was that after all of the uh, toxic waste, the, the allegedly you know illegal toxic waste stockpiles were identified across a large part of Melbourne's northern suburbs, particularly the city of Hume, um, um, that community reached out to um, the community in the inner west of Melbourne, where you, you, you'll recall that last August we had, I guess, the lid blow off this whole really messy dirty business, and that was when the, the West Footscray factory... Uh, sorry, it wasn't a factory. Uh, um, it was a warehouse. I keep correcting that and everybody else, and I've just said it myself. It was a, a, a warehouse in West Footscray that was packed to the rafters with um, illegally stored toxic chemicals, and um, uh, it um, decimated a, great, a good proportion of our local creek, um, but it could have potentially decimated a, a big proportion of our local community, and we were very fortunate that day that the smoke cloud, the, the toxic smoke cloud that was created by that fire was kept airborne by the prevailing weather conditions and didn't ground too severely. Um, goodness knows and uh, what could have happened if that had have come down. But uh, I'm the friends of, uh, the secretary of the Friends of Crookshank Park where Stony Creek runs through and we saw that our creek and everything living in it destroyed and a lot of hard years of work destroyed. So when the Hume community reached out to us and we started talking with people up there and realising how frightened and worried they were uh, and are about the situation, we decided to meet and get a few groups together. And that's and it was at that first meeting in late April um, that we unanimously voted at that meeting, 15 different groups at the time, to form the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance. And there was such strong sense of unity at that meeting and purpose. Uh, a few weeks later, we, we've now got 32 uh, groups and organisations in the Alliance. Uh, it's growing every week. Um, we now have two Facebook communities in the Alliance as well. So it, it's just, it's a it's Alliance for the, I guess, the, the uh, a major issue that's a life-threatening issue in our community and we determined to get some, some real action on this from our, our parliamentary representatives. And as you mentioned before, the Alliance consists of many different groups who are affiliated to this group. Uh, what sort of groups are involved in the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance? Yes, Marcus. Well, we've we've got uh, an incredible um, breadth, and, and again, it's broadening by the week. Uh, we've got um, about 10, I think, friends, environmental friends groups, and these are people, as you know, that devote a lot of their time and energy and passion into caring for nature um, in this city. Uh, and are very concerned about the potential impacts on waterways, parklands, um, uh, of these these threats in our community. Um, so we've got, you know, the Friends of Mary Creek, the Friends of Maribyrnong Valley, the Friends of Stony Creek, uh, a range of those. We have also a number of sustainability um, uh, groups, community groups that are sustainability-focused and uh, climate change-focused. Uh, and we also have quite a number of residents action groups, so the Broad Meadows Progress Association, Faulkner Residents Group, um, Brooklyn uh, Residents Action Group, you know, right across Melbourne's uh, western and northern suburbs. We have one school, uh, a college in Coolaroo that was seriously affected by uh, one of the fire, you know, the bad fires up in the north. We have um, also a couple of unions. Uh, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union and the, I think the AWU as well. And everyone is just, you know, because, the, of course, the, the issues for workers, um, the, the people who are, who are working in some of these premises and in premises beside them, and also the, the firefighters and workers that are going in and the frontline responders. So there's, 
there's uh, you know a, a huge groundswell of momentum in this community, and I was very um, gratified to see um, a journalist, actually um, an age journalist, uh, Carolyn Webb, in today's article about the formation of the alliance, ATWA. Um, she's she's labelled us um, a super lobby group, and um, we couldn't have named ourselves better, I think, because that's what we are. We we are a super lobby group across a huge chunk of Melbourne and growing every day. And so what's the tactics? Now that you've uh, gathered people together and there is definitely a, a strong community response because it's all about safety and security and a sense, I guess, that uh, actually we can't keep going on as business as usual because actually there are no protections for communities right up close to these facilities. What, what sort of tactics are you discussing? Yeah, uh, thanks, Annie. Well, one of the, I guess, our first priorities, because as you, you'll be aware, there's a current parliamentary inquiry happening into the um, recycling and, price and, and waste management crisis in the state. And so our initial priority, which was quite soon after we formed, um, was to, to get, our, get a submission into that inquiry and to do it a little bit differently and do something that would, I guess, make um, make the, the parliamentary... Um, committee members and, and other um, local members um, take notice. And so in addition to our written uh, inquiry submi- submission to the inquiry, we actually produced a video um, which and also a, a wall mural and a number of posters. And they feature, uh, or the basis of those, are the artworks that were created by three- and four-year-old children from a Yarraville kindergarten who right, go to kinder right beside the creek Stony Creek, mm. and had to experience their their uh, whole the death of everything in the creek and mm. the smoke. Fifty schools and preschools were evacuated the day of that fire here last August. Uh, the lived experience of the children in this community is significant, and the fears they have for the future at the age of three uh, is palpable when you see their artwork and the comments in the video. So we're trying to, I guess one thing you'll see from the Alliance is we'll think a bit outside the square. You'll see some tactics that perhaps are a bit more traditional. There'll be, if we need to go and make, take action in the streets, we will. Uh, but we'll, you'll also see some different tactics that perhaps are looking at um, uh, leveraging social media networks and making sure that our message is getting heard. And that's what we have to do. We will do whatever it takes to get our message through and to, and to get it heard by the people who are making decisions here, who are elected to make decisions on behalf of this community, who are elected to protect our health and protect our safety. Now, that's first and foremost here. Uh, I should just say, I worked for 11 years in Victoria's core infrastructure and transport departments. I know how vital transport infrastructure is and I support having you know, vital transport infrastructure in this state. I also live in Melbourne's inner west and I now know how from a deep personal experience, the consequences of badly managed waste, particularly toxic and hazardous waste in this community. And Melbourne needs to transform our waste management infrastructure, just like we're, you know, focusing on transport infrastructure. It's essential. And if we don't do it, there's no point having the most efficient transport system in Australia if it is too toxic to breathe and if we all have to do our daily tasks wearing gas masks and if we're all getting cancers in our 40s and 50s. If if our children are getting cancers, you know, 20 years sooner than, than the rest of, you know, rest of the older population. It's, it's a disgrace. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just stunned. I, I, I'm and shocked and horrified still 
as I was when I saw what happened to our creek that day. The colours of the rainbow it turned went from looking like metallic nail polish to a glacial runoff um, blue-green. Um, when, I saw, when I was woken up at 5.30 that morning by explosions, um, in, in my own bedroom, hearing, hearing this surreal experience, you know, experience of explosions in my own neighbourhood, um, I could go on. <laughs> As you can see, I'm quite passionate about this topic. We need um, decisive bipartisan action from our parliament. Uh, it needs to be immediate and it needs to be clear and it needs to be treated like we see when a major bushfire is bearing down on a, a rural community in Victoria. That's what this metropolitan community needs and wants to see. This needs to be treated as a state of emergency. And you mentioned before, uh, Sue, about the artwork from the local kindergarten children as part of the submission. And I've got one of these drawings uh, here in front of me from Oscar, and pity the listeners can't see it. But yeah, the kindergarten boy says, if we, if we humans keep hurting country, we will have to wear oxygen tanks all, all the time. So, I mean, we've got a four-year-old boy who yeah. understands that toxic chemicals are harmful to the environment and people, yet our uh, politicians don't seem to get it. You, you see the drawings of these young kids, uh, really the future generation of decision-makers in this country, and, I, and, and they get it. Uh, and they get it. And, and it kicks you in the guts. The, the mural that they've got on the wall of their kinder is so dark from the smoke and the dead animals that they painted and drew after seeing what happened in their community. It is just so moving and sad. And they get it. I only hope that by the time they are in leadership positions, it's not too late. Have you had any responses from uh, the parliament or politicians? Uh, we, we are actually, uh, after sending around our submission and, and the video to all of the um, lo- you know, members across, uh, across this side of town and also the p- individual members of the Planning and Environment Committee, we have um, been approached by a number of MPs to meet and we're looking forward over the next few weeks to be meeting with as many uh, of our elected representatives as we can and having a, a good discussion about the community's concerns and and finding out, I guess, where they stand on this issue. As I said, we want bipartisan um, decision-making in this parliament. This is life-threatening stuff. This cannot involve big big P politics. This has got to be bipartisan action. And have you got any information on there being a police inquiry into the obvious uh, illegalities in the waste management of uh, deadly chemicals in this uh, state? Uh, Look, I, I, I... well, I know that there's a joined-up task force that's looking into all of this and, and addressing it and also looking into it. So, And one thing I'll say about the Alliance is that we're not about as well. We're, our purpose is not to bash any particular agency or, or focus our attentions on any, you know, what's happened or not happened. I know that there's some very um, strong efforts being put into looking into the causes of this and, and preventing it, which is, which is great here. We were very pleased to see in the media um, about a week ago, I think it was, um, an announcement by the government that they're um, planning laws to significantly increase um, the you know, penalties for serious breaches of the, of the laws and, uh, and including uh, periods of incarceration uh, for serious offenders. That really needs to happen. We're very disappointed, though, to see that it won't be retrospectively um, applied. Applied, Given what's happened in our community uh, over the last year or two, um, but there may, you know, um, I don't know the, the the 
in-depth uh, reasons for that. I just think that um, I know there's a lot going on. Having worked in Victoria's public service for many years, I appreciate how hard and wicked this situation is and understand that, that everyone is, is focusing on it and doing what they can. What we need is decision-making at the, at the top from our parliamentarians that does not bring politics into this issue, that enables decisions to be made that are, that are strong and protective and preventative for this community, um, that empower the EPA and WorkSafe uh, and the police to do what they need to do to protect our health and safety and the, and the health of our environment going forward. And, and it's just, it's essential. It's just, I mean, you'd think it would be a no-brainer, but for decades, members of this community, and including, there's a number of people in the Alliance who have been hitting their heads against, you know, the proverbial brick wall for decades to get people to hear our concerns and say, this is wrong. And you hear stories like this all over um, the world of communities crying out for action, you know, whether it's a bridge they don't think is safe or a building they fear is going to fall down or, or a factory they say is, going to go, is, is dangerous or toxic. You, you hear this and then there's no action or insufficient action from the, from the powers that be and the worst happens. Clearly the regulators we, yeah. Yeah, need to be given more power and the, and the power to act because, I mean, for too long, particularly in the north, in the city of Hume, the working class people there in a neglected community are just supposed to cop toxic fires year in, year out. Yeah, and, and it's also the issues with landfill as well, Marcus. Like, uh, you know, the seepages and that from landfill, the communities are saying, this is this is affecting us. We're getting cancer clusters um, uh, forming, uh, you know, and there's, there's not enough longitudinal studies to, you know, funded to sort of highlight what's really going on, but it's starting to appear in this community now. And, uh, and, and these... These are the consequences people suffer. These are the consequences that our children suffer if we do this badly. And guess what? Victoria is doing it really badly. And it's, this, this government has an opportunity and this parliament has an opportunity to transform. This is, this is a time, this is that tipping point in, in history where we'll be judged, you know, by the future generations. Did we get it right? Or did we just go on with more of the same or a few Band-Aid things here and there? You know, this, this, is, this is decades of neglect that have to end and they've got to stop here with the current parliamentary inquiry and with this government. Thank you, know, you and, very yeah. much, Sue, for spending time and talking to us about this. And we will certainly, it's a watching brief, isn't it? Yeah, look, I look forward to talking with you further about this over time and I look forward to... To, to the Alliance getting out there and finally the voice of this community being unified, unified and strong enough to be heard. That's what we want. Thanks, Sue. Tests on animals are not only dangerous because they lead to wrong conclusions, but furthermore, they retard clinical investigation, which is the only valid kind. It's like the government protects with deception. Activists arrested for protesting. Animal testing for deception is flawed. Tested for cures for cancers on rats. This hypocrisy is ignored and intentions corrupt. When they find 50 cures on rats, what love work on us? Experiments and monkeys if the rice turns up They tip it cart to the net Imagine if it was us So I'll rap till they stop these Torturous tests until they shut down Oxford naps and hate to lesson Till all our forms of sentience Feelings and intelligence are treated with respect and reverence And stop eating burgers Cause meat is murder This vegan verbal demon wrapped to beat this murder And factory farmers, realities alarming Their souls, animals in environment will harm
And uh, coming up now is This Is The Week That Was. Um, on a day when we're talking about rubbish um, yeah. and getting rid of rubbish, you have The Week That Was On, which is... <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we'll, we have you live because we couldn't find you in the system. So uh, thanks for uh, waking up and uh, doing the deed. Yes, yesterday was obviously a rehearsal, but uh, can I just comment? I, I've got a friend who's an expert on marine environments and took me out to look at Stony Creek after that fire, oh, and mm. the, the, it's just devastating, this sort of thing. So, yeah, good luck to the people getting it all sorted out. Okay, a weak solidarity brekkie team listener when where would we be without the self-proclaimed credit rating agencies like Standard Making You Pause, which says states must flog off anything they own, which can turn over a neat little profit, which they haven't already flogged off, to build infrastructure built by the great corporations. Uh, so they'll flog off what they own so they can own infrastructure. Well, no, no, of course they wouldn't own the infrastructure. The, the inefficient, bloated hand of the state must leave these matters to the super-efficient, lean, mean private sector. Unless, obviously, it, uh, it loses money. Speaking of doing his bit for, the, bit for the U.S. of the U.N., of the U.S. of the world economy, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor said Mexico now respected him and the U.S. of, grammatically wrong, but his modest language, now respected where until he came along they had taken the U.S. of as idiots. Well, some consolation, Donald. It's not just Mexico who takes you as an idiot. I'm struggling to think of anyone outside your immediate family who doesn't, and we're not even sure of them. Although no one could be as dumb, dumb, dumb as those evil, evil Iranians. Surely they know Donald's senior advisor for train killing and slaughter, John Beltham, is so concerned at the threat they pose to peace as he keeps scratching this insatiable itch that he feels he must reluctantly advise Donald to wipe Iran off the map to liberate its people and give the wreckage that remains a leadership the US of control, sorry, the liberated people can trust. The insatiable itch for peace and the US of knows there's only one way to achieve peace corroborated by no less respectable an industry as the merchants of death whose sole purpose in producing trillions of dollars of and trillions of weapons of mass destruction is the preservation of peace. Yet just as a fleet of US of weapons of lands off its coast in the quest for peace, what does dumb, dumb, dumb Iran do? It attacks these oil tankers, including a Japanese oil tanker, just when the Japanese big supremo is there to avoid this sort of thing. What provocation? What dumb, dumb, dumb provocation? And that's on top of sending drones to bomb peace-loving, liberty, freedom and democracy-loving Saudi, a major force for peace in the region, and then to compound their evil, shoot down an innocent US of drone just doing a bit of spying over US of Iranian territory. Now... Some conspiracy theory cynics with no proof whatever are suggesting this is all a US of dirty tricks campaign, as if the great protector of world peace would resort to dirty tricks. Conspiracy theory cynics falling for Iran's evil, evil Iran's denials. Well, they would, wouldn't they? Including denying the US of peacekeeping drone was not spying over US of Iranian territory when there can be no doubt. The US of has produced the proof, an Iranian-style bomb thingy, mine thingy, manufactured as recently as 1800 and something. 
what more proof do they need? And the US of has lots more proof which it can't discuss for security reasons. Uh, what reasons, we asked John Beltham, uh, to maintain the security of our story? That weapons of mass destruction, uh, how can I describe it, an uh, incident at the UN of the US of the UN of the world has made us more careful about exposing our security sources. Fair enough, John, although the Japanese crews say they saw flying objects which would disprove your irrefutable evidence. What would they know? Were they there? Uh, well, yeah, they were, but they lacked the sophisticated technology that is our peace machine. At certain times of day in that region, people can see optical illusions. Uh, what certain times of day? It usually occurs when our peace love and train killer jets are overhead. It's a natural phenomenon. So their eyewitness account is unreliable because they were there. Exactly, obviously. And your proof is exactly, obviously. Just wondering, John, what if Iran sent a fleet off the US of coast and drones to spy over the US of? That would be aggressive provocation and would be just the excuse I'm looking for, uh, sorry, could force the US of reluctantly to go to war. After all, there is universally accepted by all our great friends like True Blue Aussie, US of Iranian territory, but clearly there is no Iranian US of territory. <clears throat> This all started, of course, because Donald was upset his predecessor had joined a number of countries in signing an agreement with evil Iran, which proved how evil it really is by sticking to the agreement, forcing Donald to abandon the agreement and send in the Marines via choking Iran economically, because Donald knows you can't trust anyone who sticks to an agreement. Speaking of peace and security, our hardy respected minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, continuing the compassionate policy set by his predecessor and now leader, Big Supremo Scuttle Them Morlashson, scrambled out of the zombie swamp where he had been weighed down by certain raids to announce his solution. It's time for a sensible discussion on domestic spy powers, he said leaving us to ponder why he wants to leave himself out. Oh, no, he went on to say the sensible discussion must address complex security issues. So that's the point where he's ruled out, and what self-awareness? The Duff said he believes the True Blue Aussie Signals Directorate, which currently spies on overseas communications, should be allowed to spy on True Blue Aussies. Hang on, haven't we heard that before? Oh, yes, of course, that's the very recommendation leaked by a journalist, the federal, sorry, uh, police, raided and which the Duff denied was even being considered. So this evil criminal journalist must have sown the idea into Pete's skull or through his skull. She's got a lot to answer for. Maybe the government should prosecute her caring employer, the American Lord Rupert of Wapping, or thank him for the idea and all the other brilliant ideas Lord Rupert demands as the great overseeing protector of our liberties, the fourth estate guardian of our freedoms, bringing us in this Radiothon season, there I said the dread word, Radiothon season, to why we need 3CR at all when we've got Lord Rupert and all the other... Uh, well, with Lord Rupert, there's not that many other, but the other great fourth estate practitioners who bring us all the news we need to know and don't bring us, by democratic decision, all the news we don't need to know.
These people know their role is to remain independent of capitalism so they can maintain their independence, their neutrality. So we must admire them for having no interest whatever in seeking huge profits and being just another caring business in the world of caring business. On that basis, 3CR doesn't help their liberty and freedom commitment by broadcasting lots of the news they know we don't need to know. As a by the way, given Constable Duffer, Duffer exposed that the government's thinking of doing that for which a journalist was raided, can we expect or can he expect a raid on his home any day now? Self-awareness and honesty also from Lord, Ro- uh, Lord Rupert Sion, Lockie Moorcrap, whose wealth and big caring employer position is attributable to his mother and father having sex. During an interview with his own media outlet, sort of interview with himself, modestly informing us of just how wonderful, caring, responsible and especially profitable is the News Very Limited Corporation, telling us how he was raised to love newspapers. They make a fortune. No, no, that was me putting words in his mouth, whereas the Lord Rupert Empire would never put words in people's mouths. No, Lockie said Lord Rupert imbued in us an appreciation for the print business, but also an appreciation of the creative processes. See? Self-awareness and honesty, for we're better than Newsbury, very limited, to enjoy the creative processes. And note, not print media, but print business. One of the most important things we do need to know is that evil unions are evil. And speaking of capitalism, what right do financial amateurs like evil union bosses have to oversee the trillions of lovely, lovely workers' super money when that onerous responsibility is the rightful role of the financial professionals in the great enterprises that are the respectable banks? No, let's not go with an oxymoron, the banks and the financial institutions. And we recall the former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? Wonder if Kelly et al. now regret leaping off the ship that righted itself. Kelly inserting that term of reference into the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission and poor Kelly hopping around on one foot with blood streaming from the bullet in her other foot as his honour revealed the ripping off and rorting problems lay with the very people to whom Kelly and the team want to hand all that lovely lovely. Thankfully, despite that painful setback, the government now feels enough time has elapsed for us to forget that little finding, and our big economic guru, Josh Prydem Icebergs, declared this week a top priority for the economy is to remove evil unions from all that lovely, lovely, which must be handed to the banks and other mates who know about these things. Uh, but the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission found the union co-run funds easily outperform your mates. Are you from 3CR? Thought so, or overlook your typical 3CR emotive language, but clearly his honour found the industry funds were ripping off and rorting the banks and great financial institutions' retail funds. Huh? How do you reach that conclusion? How are they rorting and ripping off your mates? They are not my mates. I am simply acting in the best interests of the country and the best interests of the workers, as evil as workers are. They are rorting and ripping off by exposing how the banks and the great financial institutions are rorting and ripping off. Oh, well, finally, on that, he makes a strong and accurate argument. Good morning.
Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And on the line, we've got Dr. Noah Pasil. How are you, Noah? I'm very well, Annie. Great to be back on air. I was just talking about, uh, yeah, my long association with this radio program to, to my partner this morning. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm, we're very pleased to hear from you again. Uh, people have commented on how they miss you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, now we're going to talk about the vexed issue of American aggression towards Iran to begin with. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Um, Well, yeah, like a lot of people, um, I'm not surprised that Donald Trump is beating or his his administration is beating war drums. Um, And it's quite predictable in some ways. Uh, It's, you know, it, it is... It is very alarming, of course, and that goes without saying. But we have to remember the Trump administration is really beholden to two or three interest groups that have a huge influence over it, and we've seen that with uh, the. Uh, and, uh, we've seen that with a lot of the announcements around Israel-Palestine, in particular, um, and the almost subjugation of U.S. foreign policy to Israeli interests in the region. So, and if you think about the Saudi influence and its importance to certain uh, lobby groups or fractions of capital that are very close to the Trump administration, then one can see why the, why Trump and his um, and his uh, sort of closest uh, advisors are pushing towards war. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because uh, a lot of the announcements, if you follow it, uh, in a way seem to be fragmented. They don't make much sense in terms of general foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, but actually, when you point out that it's actually about particular economic interests uh, that support Trump, that we realise that uh, there is some coherence. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the two largest fractions of capital that seem to support Trump, uh, the fossil fuel industry, so people like the Koch brothers and others who invested in um, petroleum, coal, gas. So, you know, that's why we've had such an intransigence over uh, climate change and a refusal to even consider the possibility that man-made, um, there are man-made causes or human causes for uh, climate change. Um, uh, and that lobbies very close to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Kuwait, who have uh, long-standing um, rival, rivalries with Iran, um, which are seem to be coming to a head. And I mean, the Saudi administration, the Saudi monarchy, is in huge domestic trouble itself. Uh, and we can see how sensitive it is to any external, sorry, to any um, internal um, issues uh, with the way that it murdered um, Khashoggi. Yeah, I mean, that's any right. criticism of that regime now is really being... I mean, it's far more repressive. I mean, it's the thing about a lot of Middle Eastern, and I guess dictators generally, we have to call the Saudi royalty 
a dictatorship, um, even though it's it's one with very um, long tentacles through the royal, you know, this huge royal family. Um, but nonetheless, it's a dictatorship. And, you know, the minute that we get the change of government, these pronouncements of uh, more moderate, moderate or modernising um, um, successor, such as MBS, who was touted as, you know, the new face of Saudi Arabia, I, my immediate reaction is, uh, my immediate response is, watch this guy for his reaction, his reactionary politics. I mean, we saw it with Bashir al-Assad. Uh, we've seen it with al-Sisi. Uh, we've seen it with uh, a number of people over uh, around the world, um, and I think Saudi Arabia is the same. I mean, from my position, peace in the Middle East runs through Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Riyadh. They're the two poles of instability and imperialism in the Middle East, um, and we're seeing those play out now in U.S. foreign policy. Both we saw it a decade and a half ago in Iraq, and now we're seeing it in Iran. It's also interesting that, um, for example, uh, Trump, uh, who's a major player in this, uh, has just had a uh, given given a speech apparently where he t- has told the audience that he's going to cure cancer. This is leading up to the next election, mm-hmm. which is you know like he's making these wild, uh, I, uh, saying these wild statements, um, uh, uh, which is quite bizarre to anybody with any. Uh, uh, rational brain, but obviously being told that you're going to—he's uh, the Messiah and he's going to cure cancer, uh, leading uh, the people into a war, another war uh, would obviously uh, um, solve any of his requirements to come up with the goods. Oh, look! I, I you know, when you think about his constituency, these are people who are a lot of them are. Um, you know, the evangelical right, um, who actually see the war in the Middle East as a precursor to the end of the world and salvation. So for them, this is, this is not, you know, not, not um, something they would oppose. Um, a large proportion of them, not all, but a large proportion. Reading some of the stuff on the evangelical right in the U.S. Is, makes me just think, you know, that, that 10 or 15% of Americans are, are really driving a lot of foreign policy in these people, and I, don't, I mean this in a, you know, it's not a very academic term, but they're bonkers yeah. on a whole range of issues, um, and for them, the end of the world is something they're, they're praying for. And, you know, when you think about this, the conditions that a lot of people in America are living in, um, the alienation, the disillusionment, the poverty, the uh, individualism... Um, you Someone, know, someone's just put out a statement around... Uh, uh, sex tra- trafficking, trafficking of children in America. Yeah, um, I mean, this is a country where the gaps between rich and poor, between those who have um, capacity and opportunity and those that don't, is so huge now that you can sort of understand to some extent this um, longing for and, and this sort of um, contestation of um, individualism. There's this real confusion, I think, which is really driving a lot of what's happening in the US in um, with Brexit, with the rise of the right in Europe and here in Australia, I think to some extent, maybe not as obviously yet, but... Uh, it will be, be. It yeah. will be. And that's this confusion around neoliberalism and... Um, the failure of neoliberalism. Well, the, this, idea, well this idea that neoliberalism is um, this, this set of economic... 
um, um, requirements or policies, structures that free people to live the lives they want, um, and the that and the sort of notion of the Chardonnay sipping elite benefiting from it. Mm. You know, like there's this confusion that progressives are the people driving neoliberalism. This is oh, I know, isn't like that Trump, bizarre? Yeah, this is what people like Trump and... Um, and that's partly because they, they can confuse people around the beneficiaries and the, and, the, and, the people, and the losers of... the winners and losers of neoliberalism to make out that they themselves are on the side of the losers, whereas the people who are inner-city elites who have lost any sort of understanding of how the average person lives are the people who are driving individualism, um, homosexuality, um, uh, um, pr- promiscuousness. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the way... When in actual fact, that, it's that side of the, the equation that are the people like Trump and the people like Morrison and all those people, they're the ones who are actually benefiting from neoliberalism. That's right. They're benefiting economically. A bi- a big time. So, yeah, yeah, big time. But neoliberalism is also a progressive neoliberalism, but capitalism, as we know from Marx, is a progressive force. So it does break down old structures. Um, and the neoliberal turn has broken down old structures. It's opened up space for women to work, you know, which has changed the nature of the family and empowered women. You know, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, in, and that confusion is allowing people like Trump and Johnson and Farage and all these people coming through, Corey Bernardi, to claim the... They're the they're the stabilizing force. They're the they're the people who are protecting traditional values, while at the same time they're pushing neoliberalism, which is responsible for the breakdown of traditional values. Yeah. But of course, progressives want to see traditional values broken down because they're often patriarchal, um, you know, elitist, a whole range of things. Yeah, it's um, funny you should say this. It's a bit like this ad that's out at the moment, where you've got this monster car, yeah. and beside it, it's got. When was the last time you smelt? A, a, a campfire, and you know, like it's positioned yeah. in the bush with a little campfire beside it. And it's, it, it's so, it's so what you just said. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, and, and that's where I think we're seeing Trump at the moment position himself. So when we think about the, you said before the fragmentation of his message, um, that's because the, the I think he's a symptom of a fragmented um, ideological project or project that projects fragmentation as part of its strategy. Ah, yes. Which is yeah. actually what Bielke Peterson used to do. He was a, yeah. a master of fragmented uh, uh, bon mots, as it were, that would yeah. uh, undo people's sense of st- uh, emotional stability. Yeah, and there's a lot of conflicting messages. So, you know, if, if you were, if you were um, an evangelical in America, you would be opposed to a whole range of Trump's policies because you would go, okay, well, if you want to stabilise the family, then you should raise minimum wage, you know, get one, you know, like there's a whole range of things that you would say, but, you know, to, to probably try and... Have homes for people. Yeah, have homes, you know. To, if you See, these people aren't traditional conservatives. This is the confusion as well. Neoliberalism is a very radical project um, on one level, but it's also a very conservative one on the other. And it's a real... I mean, I've been reading a fair bit about this. This is an area that I've gained a huge amount of interest in, is understanding the ideological battles that neoliberals have fought since the 1960s and 70s and looking at it through the lens of culture, the culture wars, 
rather than economic policy. Yep, yep, um, yep that's right. And that's what they've mastered. Yeah, they're the, they're, I've been thinking about that too. Uh, yeah. If you looked at it properly, it's been 60 years that they've uh, now at their, their peak and it was a structure that they built. And if that's possible, obviously a more progressive and better uh, a more fulfilling uh, outcome for humans could be built in the same way. It could, except the difference is that neoliberalism benefits ca- capitalism, capitalism and capitalists have invested in this project a huge amount. Yeah. Um, the alternative strategy requires people power rather than capital. Um, so, you know, for example, the Koch brothers, uh, or if we look here in Australia, the IPA mm. has a huge amount of funding from Gina Reinhart. Yes, you know, who on the progressive side of politics could get, give that sort of money to an alternative, to, uh, to, to building an alternative ideological project? Probably not. The trade unions, possibly. Um, Maybe that's uh, why they're in sights. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just being exactly, facetious there. No, no, that's exactly why they're in sights. The reason yeah. that the Conservatives attack the trade unions and, I mean, partly not just because of... Um, um, the capacity for them to collectively um, organise no, in the workplace, right. but also because they're they're, a, they're potentially an organisation that could build a ideological project. Universities are the same. That's why the IPA and the they've destroyed the them. Centre for Independent Studies um, attack universities all the time. Yeah, no, and the universities are being destroyed. They're being destroyed because they know that you know. I, I'm, was it? Hayek said that the two groups that are most dangerous for neoliberalism are businesses and intellectuals. Yeah. You know, he knew that if business understood neoliberalism, they wouldn't want it, um, you know, entirely. And if um, intele- and if intellectuals were allowed to speak openly about neoliberalism, they would, you know, they would contest it so thoroughly that people would see what it is, you know, what it does. So, you know, this is the... I think this is... Um, why we have to understand Trump as a symptom, as symptomatic of this. I think he's a, in many ways, he performs or he has the embodiment of the contradictions of capitalism. And that's why I think he speaks to so many people in the US and elsewhere, here in Australia um, and elsewhere. And that's why war in the Middle East for me is, poss- is, is, is very possible. It's, it's something that could happen. Um, it's I mean, horrifying. The other thing we have to remember is that the other major lobby group and probably the most important economic sector in the U.S. now is the military. Oh yes, uh, industrial and, complex. You know, mm. War is great for them. Yeah. Um, and you know the U.S. has since uh, World War Two waged war almost endlessly in yeah, one part, it has. part of the world or another. Yeah. So you know launching a war against Iran is not inconceivable if you start looking at you know Korea, Vietnam. Um, uh, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah. excuse me, Afghanistan and Iran, you know. The, and South America. And South America, yeah. So, yeah. you know, this is this is a real possibility. We have to uh, stop, Noah. I'm sorry, we got oh, to you. No. Yeah, I know, but we'll if you if you're up for it, we'll we'll get back to you uh, at least once a month. That would be fantastic. I would love that. Great. Thank you very much for this really great discussion this morning. I look forward to continuing. Thanks. It's great to talk to you, Annie. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And we really do. We have to go. Uh, we, Marcus, we have to be off. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Annie, and thanks, listeners, and we'll yeah, see you the same time next week. Yeah, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with the wonderful Amy Winehouse.
Enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.